Hey, Cassidy here. I work at CFUV 101.9 FM as the Indigenous Media Coordinator. This is the second part of my chat with Catherine Lafferty, where we explore a few excerpts of her writing. Catherine Lafferty, whose Dene name is Katlia, is Yellowknife Dene author, reporter, law student, and mother. She is the author of Northern Wildflower, published by Fernwood in 2018, and Landwater Sky, published by Fernwood in 2020. She writes for Indigenews, The Taiyi, The Briar Patch, and other publications. If you missed the first part and want to listen to our conversation in full, you can find it online at cfuvpodcasts.ca. In this installment, we're going to listen to and discuss a couple pieces of Catherine's pieces which have yet to be published. We're going to continue to explore the theme of justice, contemporary Indigenous life in the North, and personal responsibility. Here's the second part of that conversation. The next excerpt, This House is Not a Home. Uh, could you give a little intro about what this forthcoming novel is going to be about? This House is Not a Home is going to also be published through Fernwood uh, in the fall of 2022, hopefully. Right now it's in the first edit. Uh, it is a fictional novel based on a family that I know here in the Northwest Territories that were dispossessed through the um, uh, housing corporation back in the 80s. Um, they went away on a hunting trip and they came back six weeks later and their house was bulldozed. And uh, they had to then live in a home that they had to pay for running water, electricity, and things like that. And so it really follows the story of a family struggling to make that transition from living completely on the land to now living within a housing system um, that's based on a capitalism um, society and uh, with the with the struggle of trying to get back what they had lost. day that he was taken. His father had gone out to check his trap line a few days before. It was one of the rare occasions that Ko didn't go with him. He needed to stay home and help his mum with some of the chores around the house as she wasn't feeling well. Ko's mother was inside preparing food. Ko was outside as always. He was sitting on a boulder curled over a small piece of wood that he was chiseling into one of his many carvings that improved with each piece of wood he dedicated to the craft. He had just finished carving out the eyes of an eagle when he saw something from the corner of his own eyes. Boats were slowly making their way through the communities on the peninsula, stopping along the shoreline where the houses stood. Ko could see that when the visitors got back into their canoe, there was a commotion, followed by faint cries and people standing at the shoreline huddled together. 
He couldn't make out what they were saying, but he knew something wasn't right and ran to tell his mother. Ko's mother followed him outside to see what was going on, but she stopped in the doorway of their house and leaned on it for support, holding her stomach. They both watched as the boats moved in closer, their canoes slowly filling up with children who were dragged away from their parents as they tried to hold on to each other, not knowing why they were being torn apart. Ko's mother took him by the hand and hurried inside and shut the door. She continued about her business, preparing their next meal, as she always did. When Ko tried to ask her what was happening, she didn't respond. Instead, she tried to hide her sadness. She couldn't bear to surrender to what was happening. She didn't want to believe it. She closed her eyes, trying to keep her tears in and will the missionaries out, but she could hear their paddles cutting madly through the water as they came closer. She had gotten word some time ago that they might be headed north. Her sister had learned of the strange people from her husband's father, who had gone as far as the flatlands to make trade. Their relatives in the south warned of a people dressed in costume, who believed a man to be the creator of all things. She was told that they were taking the children away from their families, forcing them to believe their ways, some never to return home. These people, she was warned, were not like them. They were from another part of the world. They wore all black and tied long ropes around their necks with shining medallions hanging at their sides. Ko's mother could see now that the warnings were true, but it was too late to take Ko and run. Besides, she hadn't the strength, she was too weak with nausea and fatigue, that they wouldn't make it very far even if they tried. Like a swift summer sandstorm, the missionaries blew through the small indigenous communities that dotted along the shoreline of the peninsula and silenced the children's laughter. It was early spring, and there were still heaps of heavy slush in the shadows of the trails. The warmth of Ko's mother's breath evaporated in the air in front of her when she bravely put on her shawl and stepped outside. She watched in shock as the burly men in red suits and black boots beat the mothers and fathers with long, thick batons when they tried to stop them from taking their children. Ko tried to see what was going on as he peeked out from behind his mother, but she put her hand over his eyes and blocked his view as they approached Kiwiton's home. Although Kiwiton was fast and fit, the men in red suits outnumbered him. They chased him down and scooped him up by the stomach before he could get away. The Mounties hung on to both his arms tightly as the priest tried to put a blessing on him. The priest held a heavy cross out in front of him, believing that there was an evil in the boy, but this only angered Kiwiton even more. He kicked and punched at the cloak stranger who stood in front of him in patriarchy, his large black cloak churning in the changing winds. Ko's mother gripped Ko's hand tightly and met him at eye level. Don't run, she whispered, telling him not to run or fight back. Don't fight back, she cried, telling him that he must be brave and wait for his father to bring him back home. Go with him now and wait. Your father will come for you. Be brave. She kissed him on the forehead before walking out in front of him into the blinding sunshine. With her head held high, she walked straight towards the fast approaching boats, their oars ripping maniacally through the water, breaking through the last of the thin ice on the shoreline, cracking it like pieces of delicate glass. The priest stood up in the rocking canoe with a large wooden cross in hand. He waited for the Mounties to dock the boat on the smooth, slippery rock before being helped out while the children inside the boat whimpered below him, except Kiwiton. He was the only one in the boat not crying. Ko's mother noticed right away how sickly the foreigner looked. The priest was pale and haunch. The sight of him up close made her ill, and she couldn't hold in her overbearing nausea. She tried to cover her mouth, but she bent over and brought up the berries she had eaten that morning. 
As she wiped her mouth clean with the back of her hand, she saw the disregard on the Mounties' faces as they looked down at her, disgusted at the sight of her. The nuns stood still in the long canoe next to the captive children, their hair covered in black cloth held tightly to their head. As the Mounties pushed past Ko's mother, she watched helplessly as they took Ko. She looked up, still holding onto her stomach, and forced a smile at Ko, gently nodding to make sure he knew he was going to be okay, that she would be okay. She knew that upon his return, Ko's father would band together with the other men in the community and bring their children home. With the help of the Mounties, the priest collected the rest of the children out of every home. One by one, they were tossed into the large canoe until there was no room for more. As they turned away from the peninsula, Kiwiton built up the courage to try to jump out of the boat, but he was pulled back in and shoved down. The Mounties had no patience for Kiwiton's relentless determination, and the priest gave a nod to the larger enforcer, giving him the go-ahead to apply more force. The Mountie punched the boy hard on the temple, knocking him out cold. Kiwiton was left lying at the bottom of the boat, a solemn reminder for the rest of the children to behave until they would arrive in a new land that they had never seen. Ko tried to help his cousin, but he was hit hard across the hand with a strap by one of the disapproving nuns. Ko then set his eyes on the lake behind him, trying desperately to remember his way home. It was the first time that he learned to numb his feelings for his own survival. Little did he know that when they arrived at their destination, Kiwiton would be unable to wake up. He would later be buried behind the schoolyard in an unmarked grave. With his eyes wide, Ko never blinked once as he mapped the route in his mind so that he would know where they were going, and more importantly, so he would know his way back home. Ko's mother broke down and wept when the boat turned the corner of a small island and out of sight, off to a distant place that she could only hope he would return from unharmed. That very day, Ko's father was on his way home earlier than expected after a successful muskrat harvest. His dog team raced through the trails heading for home, but when he heard the sound of distant cries through the trees in the small communities that he passed by on his way, he slowed down to be sure of what he was hearing. Through the clearings, he saw weeping parents huddled at the shorelines, the sounds of infants too young to be taken away to school, mirroring the painful sobs in the sorrowful arms of their mothers. Cole's father sent his dogs into a sprint as he lashed his whip on the ground next to them. The bells tied to the end of his whip rang out as he headed towards home, hoping that he wasn't too late to save his son. does this piece take place? So the beginning of the story follows the main character, Ko, through his life as a child growing up on the land and having a very strong um, awareness of his identity and who he is in connection to the land through the teaching of his father. Uh, and then it goes on to the um, establishment of the town that grew up around them based on mining that came in and, and prospectors and settlers that came in to um, to get the gold and that was in the 40s so it kind of takes place from I'd say the 30s to about the 1980s 1990s around there. How did uh, mining affect communities of the north? Mining had a really great impact on communities of the North, and I don't say that in a positive way. Um, you know, you can hear, you can research the histories of the uranium mining in Delaney, 
the uranium was used for bombing Japan. Um, and then Giant Mine um, is basically one of the worst mining disasters, arguably the worst mining disaster in the world, with the potential to um, have arsenic leak out into the Arctic Ocean, which would kill the world twice over. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you've got the diamond mines that are now in place that are causing a lot of socioeconomic impacts um, on communities. And so, you know, before mines even came to the north, um, people were living mostly, like the indigenous peoples were mostly living off of the land and didn't have any need for money. And when I, I read the book, um, We Remember the Coming of the White Man, and in that book, um, some of the elders said they, they kind of laughed at money when when the settlers came and showed them money and and tried to explain the importance of it. And to them, it, it had no value at all. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Giant Mine. You said that there was arsenic. Yeah, so in the 40s, um, the way that they operated the Giant Mine was really, um, it would have never passed regulations today, let's just say. And uh, there was a lot of seepage of tailings into um, the waterways. And um, now they have the responsibility of actually trying to clean it up, to, to clean up the inorganic inorganic arsenic that was created out of the tailings and there's hundreds of thousands of tons of inorganic arsenic that is now sitting under the ground and scientists from all over really don't have a plan of how to contain it um, for now and into the future for right now it's being frozen in chambers underground but that's only a temporary solution so it is a big concern and it's in the backyard of the uh, Yellow Knives Denny First Nation peoples here. How do you think the RCMP and the church are interconnected um, with residential schools? Um, so the RCMP worked as enforcers uh, when the missionaries came to collect children. Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, that parents didn't have an option to keep their children home. It was the residential schools were mandated, and the way that they were mandated were through um, the RCMP. And so if a parent um, ran away or said they were not going to um, put their child in the school, they would, become, they would get arrested. Sometimes um, if they fought back, they would be uh, beaten. Or uh, in severe situations, they would have the RCMP would shoot the dog teams that would allow them to travel to go and get their children. Hmm. How do you think Dene communities would be different uh, without settlers encroaching on their territory? Well, I think Dene communities, um, people always think, you know, Indigenous people um, are in the past, um, which is really not true at all. Um, we would most likely be far more advanced in away from the industrial revolution and right into the technical revolution because the, um, you know, the, we're stewards of the land, stewards of the environment, and we protect that. And, um, New technologies like wind, solar, geothermal power, and those kind of things are something that is really um, 
something that I anyway believe in and think that, you know, communities would really thrive off of that because right now communities are reliant on um, the government for providing water, power, you know, and, and we want to be self-sufficient and we want to keep our communities. We don't have, we, we don't want to have to amalgamate into one central location. Our communities are very important and have history. And as Indigenous peoples, um, we've, we've always moved around. We've been nomadic, but we've always had our certain areas where we um, hunted and gathered and things like that. And so um, I think colonialism has really divided that through the mapping system and creating boundaries and creating um, treaties. Who decides what justice is and how does this story connect to justice? So justice, I think, is a very individualized um, entity. Um, justice is something that is to each person. So, uh, you know, for instance, in Land, Water, Sky, um, one of the main characters seeks revenge and that's her justice. And with the main character of this house is not a home, uh, his sense of justice is his ability to return what is rightfully his and to have peace. And I was wondering if you could give a brief uh, intro to Firekeeper and what that's going to be about. So Firekeeper is my fourth novel. It will be published hopefully with Fernwood Publishing in the fall of 2023. It is right now um, unfinished, but it is a manuscript. Um, it is about a young Dene woman from the North who struggles with her identity. Uh, she grows up in a single family home. Uh, her mother is abusive and she turns to fire for uh, solace. And so the theme is, is fire. Uh, and what ends up happening with her is that it's the fire that burns within her. Um, she has to decide if, if that fire is going to be um, used in a good way or in a bad way. Sonora Bar and Grill is a locally owned Mexican restaurant with salt brick steaks, corn tacos, and more. Come for the Mexican fusion cuisine, drinks, and comfortable atmosphere. You can find them in downtown Victoria at 531 Yates Street or online at sonorabarandgrill.com. feel uncomfortable. When I first noticed that they were changing, they were sticking out an inch off my chest, all pointy and weird looking. I remember not wanting to even look at myself in the mirror when naked, but not being able to look away either. I didn't want my body to change without my permission. I didn't want to grow up into a woman. I didn't want to be attractive. Luckily, I was a late bloomer and got my period way after Jules did. I just wasn't ready to deal with the work that came along with having a period after hearing the horrors that Jules was going through. Then things got even worse. A boy tried to come between Jules and I. Noah was his name, and he had managed to weasel his way into Jules' life before I could stop him. I didn't like him from the start, him or his friends, but mostly just him. 
He showed up out of nowhere on the day that Jules had persuaded me to go to the beach with her on the hottest day of the summer. We were sitting chin-deep in the clear lake water on the corner of the beach that we were sure was free of leeches. We let the waves hit our shoulders, nearly knocking us over while we tried to keep our feet afloat. We both had on the same bright red toenail polish and a head full of a thousand small braids with beads on the end. Sit still, Jules said as she braided each strand of my unruly hair. It took hours, but Jules said it would be a good way for me to keep my wild curls under control and out of my face. I know I got my curls from my dad, even though I didn't remember what he looked like. I just knew that they couldn't have been from my mom, who had stick-straight black hair as hard as the belt she beat me with. I always saw Jules as being the pretty one of the two of us, and now so did Noah. He came up to us and took a handful of wet sand and threw it in Jules' direction and waited for a reaction, just barely missing her on purpose. There's some truth to the old saying, they bug you, they love you, because when the war broke out between the boys and the girls that day in the water, Noah kept aiming at Jules until she gave up, and next thing you know she was on his shoulders laughing as she was thrown backwards into the air, landing in the water over and over. It was hard to watch. No one cared to throw a wet sand ball at me, and no one noticed when I walked back over to my beach blanket. The sand on the beach stuck to my wet feet and legs as I plunked down on my towel, leaving it in a soggy heap. I hated the beach. I hated the cold water. It could have been from when my mum threw me into the freezing cold shower as punishment for something I did or didn't do. Either way, I didn't like the water. The only reason I went to the beach that day was because Jules wanted me to go with her to check out boys. If I'd known how it was going to be, I would have stayed home and stared at the ceiling, chipping off my two-week-old red nail polish. Noah was a show-off. I watched from afar as he jumped off the cliffs and swam across the lake to the other side. I didn't want to, but I ended up tagging along, dragging my feet as we hiked up to the cliffs. The only reason why I went was because I didn't want to leave Jules alone with a bunch of boys. They jumped off the cliffs doing their backflips and cannonballs while I watched with jealousy. Let's swim to the other side, one of them dared. I heard rumors that only a few people had ever survived the swim from the cliffs to the dock on the other side of the lake near the town airport, and I sat up a bit straighter, taking more of an interest in what was unfolding in front of me. I watched as Noah's friends only made it to the middle of the lake and treaded water until a canoe happened to come along at just the right moment and save them from drowning, pulling them in, sopping wet, and nearly tipping the canoe over. I secretly wished that Noah would get a cramp and not be able to swim any farther and be too far out for anyone to save him. No such luck. He was the only one that made it across, and everyone hollered and cheered for him as he flexed his muscles and yelled in victory from the other side. Jules and I slowly drifted apart after Noah came around. She knew Noah and I never cared for each other and stopped trying to make us get along. I didn't only despise Noah because he was taking my best friend away. I had a special kind of hatred for him when I came to know how he treated animals. I didn't care much for rodents, but when I heard about what he did to his younger brother's pet hamsters after he bragged and laughed about drowning them in the bathtub, I loathed him for it. Jules didn't see that side of him, or maybe she just ignored it because she was always making plans with him and his friends. She seemed to have forgotten all about me. When she told me that Noah had told her he thought I was a lesbian because of how jealous I was about the two of them hanging out, I wondered the same about myself, but I couldn't be sure. All I knew was that I loved Jules more than I loved myself, and if that made me a lesbian, then I was okay with it. Now that I knew they talked about me when I wasn't around, I was almost sure that Jules told Noah about the life-size poster in my room of a half-naked Courtney Love whom I'm idolized ever since I found out she was married to Kurt Cobain, the only man I adored. I didn't know who I loved more, Courtney or Kurt. They were both equally messed up in their own way, which made me feel better about who I was. 
It came to the point that whenever I called Jules up to see if she wanted to hang out, her phone was busy. I don't know how many times I pressed redial and wished it was as simple as going up to her house to say hi, but by then I wasn't allowed to even knock on her door. Then, one weekend, she called me up out of the blue. Hey Nyla, a few of us are going camping this weekend to the old cemetery. Want to come? I know how much you like that kind of stuff. I was listening but wasn't sold on the idea. Stuff? You know, like morbid stuff. She did know me so well. After my idol died, we tried to reach them through a homemade Ouija board. It didn't work, but ever since I've been channeling Kurt's style, flannel everything, ripped jeans and messy hair. Who's all going, I asked, already knowing the answer. Oh, you know, just me and Noah and one of his friends. Oh, I get it. You only want me to go because his friend won't be a third wheel. Come on, Nyla, it's not like that. I haven't hung out with you in forever. Where is Kaylee? Why isn't she going? She's on vacation with her parents in Mexico. I don't know. I'll think about it. Okay, well, we're heading out tonight. You know where we'll be if you change your mind. You can always stay in my tent. Lovely, I said sarcastically. The night came and went and I didn't move off the couch. Even if I wanted to go, I wouldn't have known how to pack for camping. The only other time I had ever gone camping was a time I wanted to forget. My mom's last boyfriend in a series of bad boyfriends who happened to live out of what he could carry on his back had a yellow corn snake that he put up in a tree when he invited us to camp out at his site on the beach. It's harmless, he told my mom and me as he placed it in a nearby deadwood tree where it slithered and hung over me the entire camping trip. In the morning when my mom stepped out to use the outhouse, my mom's boyfriend took the blue striped pillow out from the white sweat-stained pillowcase in our small musty tent and told me to put my head inside to find a surprise. I put my head in and there was his snake coiled in the corner at the bottom. That was the same night my mom scolded me for playing with fire. I was cold and stood with my back to the flames trying to warm up. I turned and lit a marshmallow on the end of a stick and watched the sugar melt before it burnt to a crisp. My mom put on her nicest voice. Nyla, you're going to piss your pants if you play with fire, don't you know? I had to admit where Jules was camping out was an enticing location. I was curious to see what the old cemetery looked like up close. I'd never been. I'd only ever seen it from across the bay. The haunting white picket fences unevenly dispersed along the hill above the shoreline jutted out like a poster from a scary movie. Jules was right. I did love a good cemetery. The next morning, the sunlight poured into my bedroom window. I stared at it as a beam of light exposed the dust particles in the air hovering above my bed. I closed one eye and the scene changed. I closed the other and I saw it in a different way. I wondered if the beams of sunlight were codes that needed to be solved. Faster than the speed of light, they say. My hand moved through the beam slowly and I blinked quickly, watching it move like a strobe light. Maybe the light contains all of life's secrets. Then I saw it, the scar on my eye. It was a silver jagged streak, a squiggly line on my retina that I could see only for a few seconds when I opened my eye in the light. The last time she hit me, my eye watered for days and I couldn't see out of it. I didn't know that an eyeball could actually hurt. I'll go, I thought. I needed to get outside for a bit. The dust in my room became too much for me to breathe in. Now that I could actually see it, some fresh air and sunlight would do me good, even if I wasn't up for anything other than lying around in my bed and shutting the world out. I made it to the old cemetery just as the sun was going down. I walked along the highway until I passed the power plant. I had to run across the lazy highway and climb down a steep sinking gravel hill through a short graffiti filled culvert to get to the ski hill that would lead me to the cemetery. When I found the ski trail I knew I was close because I could hear music and laughter off in the distance. I wasn't ready to see them yet. I didn't want to look desperate for friendship. I took a detour and walked on a less beaten path. I walked around by myself for a while before making my appearance and stumbled upon a long-abandoned coyote den. 
I treaded lightly over the unmarked graves at the bottom of the hill and listened to Jules' unmistakable laugh drift off the cliff through the air above me. I looked out across the lake. It was spring melt, and the water from the snow at the top of the hill was splashing up against the jagged rocks. The hike made me thirsty, and I'd forgotten to pack water, so I cut my hands and took a sip from the small waterfall that bounced off a rock next to a small wooden bridge. I should have known not to drink it. I realized mere seconds later, but it was too late. When I looked up, I could see the graves weren't just on one level. They were layered on the hill. Surely the runoff from the small waterfall had run through some of the graves, in and over rotted dead bodies before finding its way into my own rotted and somewhat dying body. The only difference between the corpse and me was that at least their spirits had found rest. Mine was restless. Maybe it was searching for a way out, for an end. Years of spring melt had eroded everything that got in the path's way. When something blocked the water from flowing, it found other ways around and sunk under and flooded over graves. Through the years, water gradually had lifted the bodies out from under the soil, exposing the worn-out bones that once carried souls. Mounds of dirt concealing boarded caskets that were buried as far down as one could go without hitting solid permafrost were now bursting open. The earth was bursting at the seams, creating cracks in the moss, roots, and weeds. Some of the bones of children, for many of the fences around the graves, were too small to hold anyone grown. The old cemetery was nearly forgotten. It was a place where loved ones were buried in the time of the tuberculosis epidemic, when only black and white photos existed. The new cemetery was on the other side of town and was much better taken care of. It was bright and flowery, gated in wrought iron. It was obvious that the city had put off maintaining the old cemetery, and year after year the flooding became more out of control. It would be impossible to determine what grave was what. The names of the dead would now be a mystery, and it would be impossible to identify the remains of the bodies. If it were any darker, I would have probably been afraid, but I was more fascinated than frightened. After trying to spit out the last taste of my contaminated grave water from my mouth and back into the creek at my feet, I crossed over the dangerous bridge that I thought might collapse underneath me at any moment and sucked up my pride, making my way up the steep slope to see Jules and her friends. The one tent that they had was haphazardly pitched and crooked. Everyone was already more than a few drinks in when I got there. I counted heads. Turns out they found someone to replace me, making me the fifth wheel. I wanted to turn and leave before they saw me, but it was too late. I was in the clearing by then, and they were out of their tent, sitting around the fire, looking in my direction. Nyla, Jules said excitedly and jumped up, tipsy. No one else stood up or waved. They just stared at the fire and glanced at each other like they knew something I didn't. I knew how they felt about me, what they thought. I'm sure they questioned why Jules was even friends with someone like me. Hey, I said casually. Thought I'd come say hi. Ooh, I didn't think you were going to come, Jules said in a stupor. I'm not staying. Just thought I'd come hang out for a bit. I lied. I had brought a change of clothes, and now I was already dreading having to make the long walk home. Jules didn't think to introduce me to Noah's friends. I guess she figured I already knew them somehow. They all carried on with their conversation about how hilarious it was to watch Noah struggle to pitch the tent. I sat around the fire with them in feigned laughter while everyone got more intoxicated as the night went on. No one bothered to offer me a drink, but it was just as well. Seeing how stupid they looked made me not want to get to their level. When the fire was just about out, one by one they retreated into their tent. Jules was first. She couldn't hold herself up after ducking behind some bushes to go to the washroom. She came back to the fire with wet running shoes from squatting. You could see where the urine ran down her legs because her ankles were so full of soot from the fire that the stream cut right through it, leaving a trace line. Jules plopped over onto Noah, who helped her into the tent. Then he followed in after her to take care of her. The other two, whose names I don't care to remember, piled into the tent without a word, just mumbles as they held each other up. I sat outside the tent listening to them howl drunken antics inside. 
I didn't wish to be in there with them, but still I felt left out. It was too dark now to find my way back home through the ski trail, so I sat and stared at the fire slowly dying. I don't know how or why, but without thinking I turned to the fire like a moth to a flame, or so they say. In some unexplainable way it was like it was there for me, like an old friend. It too had been left alone to burn. Did it know fury like I had come to know it? A few flung pallets sat piled up next to it. I had always wanted to see what a bonfire looked like up close, and the temptation was too strong to let go of. I picked up a thin sheet of plywood off the ground beside the pallets. It looked light, but was heavy. I looked underneath it to see that the underside was coated in tar, either that or heavy mud. They must have picked up the salvaged wood from the construction site at the dump. I threw the board into the flickering, dying flame to see what would happen. It instantly caught. I threw another pallet over top, but that wasn't enough for me. I threw another one and another one and waited for the top of the plywood to catch fire. I watched as the sawdust on the edges of the rough-cut board caught, but the immense heat from the fire forced me to back away. Just then, gusts of wind coming off the lake seemed to reach out and sweep the fire into its invisible grip. Like a hand playing with a string of beads or a toss of fine long hair, the wind swirled the flames in all directions, making it dance. Even though the flames rose to dangerous heights, I still fed it like a mad scientist, adding chemicals to glass jars and watching them explode. I added more pallets until the fire had nothing more to devour, but was still hungry. I was still hungry. The heat from the fire now burned my skin, melting my eyelashes and fine hairs on my face. I watched as the fire grew, entranced. I stepped back, admiring the beauty of it. It was far more powerful than I could ever be. It took on a life of its own. It crawled beyond the rocks that encased it, the heat so intense that it began to bust the smaller rocks in half, exploding out from the circle they formed to contain the ravaging fire. The fire quickly crawled its way to a small patch of willows in between the cacks and folds of the rocks in the clearing. I watched in awe, not fully realizing the power it had, that this was just the start of its destruction. It would not stop at the brush. Snapping out of my trance and realizing the consequences, I ran to it. I tried putting it out with my jacket, but I only flamed the fire higher. It was, by then, a wild animal that couldn't be tamed. I looked over at the tent. The heat was starting to melt the thin blue material that Jules and her friends were sleeping in. I had to wake her. I ran to the floppy blue tent and tried to unzip, but the metal zipper was too hot. I covered my hand with my sweater and tried again, but the material jammed in the teeth. I ripped off the tarp that flimsily covered the patches of tent screen above the sleeping lot, but the wind and fire together ripped it out of my hand and consumed it in one swallow. The tent was melting quickly, but I could see them now through the screen. They were all still passed out. Get up, I yelled, but still they didn't move. How could they still be asleep? It seemed like they had only just ducked away inside the tent, but I couldn't know the time anymore. Then it hit me. The smoke from the fire had been billowing heavily in their direction since it started. Then I saw a small movement. Noah was the first to wake up. He seemed disoriented, but started coughing madly. He tried to stand up in the tent, but hit his head on the bar at the top. He opened his eyes and saw the flames in front of him. What the hell? He shook Jules and ran to open the zipper so they could get out, but it wouldn't budge. He grabbed the screen above him and pulled so hard, ripped a hole through the top of the tent to get out. He helped Jules out, nearly throwing her. Once out, she was useless. She fell onto the ground, barely holding herself, coughing and spitting. Noah must have shaken the other two awake. I could see him struggling to try and help them make their way out of their shared sleeping bag. I watched as the tent started to collapse in on them where Noah cut through it. It was caving in, the rainproof material shrinking and withering like a balloon when you release the air. The heat of the fire now seemed to be traveling straight towards the tent on the hunt to keep itself alive. I stood still, trying to hide on the other side of the flames, not knowing what to do. 
Noah spotted me beyond the fire and yelled something at me, but I couldn't make it out over the sound of the crackling trees that circled us. The pair broke out of their sleeping bag and out of the tent just in time, before the flame caught the tent and swallowed it up with Noah inside. The plastic material melted to one side of his face as he fought to get out. I had to turn away. I heard sirens from across the bay, but I couldn't tell if I saw their flashing lights or if it was the glow from the fire. I ran down the steep cliffs that I had climbed over earlier that day with no idea how I was going to explain to anyone what happened. Who would believe me that this was an accident? I reached the bottom of the cliff after tripping over the scattered human bones in the cemetery that now seemed to be reaching out trying to pull me down with them. There were firefighters, paramedics, and police in small rubber boats speeding towards the fire behind me. I could have called out, I could have waved my arms and surrendered, but I couldn't bring myself to face the consequences. I ran back into the cemetery and hid behind one of the only crosses that managed to still be standing upright amongst the rest of nature's degradation. I hid until the crews passed by me unseen on their way up the hill towards the sound of shrill screams of pain. Noah, what had I done? They're going to think this was on purpose. Jules was never going to forgive me. How could I have let it get this out of control? Could I have willed this to happen? Was this on purpose? Deep down, did I want him to die? I ran around the rocky shoreline of the lake. The deep water crashed against the jagged rocks and soaked me to the core. I held on to thorn-covered hanging vines to prevent myself from falling into the dark water. I held on even when the sharp, thick thorns dug into the flesh of my palms. I was more afraid of the water than the fire. I let my letter slip from my loose grip and into the water. I stumbled onto a back road in the old town and ducked in the trees behind a row of houses where I laid flat on my stomach, hoping no one would find me. I pressed my face into the dirt when they sent the dogs to sniff me out, released from their master's grip so they could run into the woods in search of my scent, or maybe they were just dogs in the backyards warning their families that a stranger was close by. My heart was beating so fast now, I'm sure the dogs could hear it, the sweat dripping off my face, I was sure they could smell it. I lay there for hours, unsure of what I was going to do next, as more and more fire trucks arrived to help and parked somewhere nearby. They were so close I could smell the exhaust over the smell of smoke. I heard the neighbors talking to one another from across their built-up fences. It's a bunch of kids up there in that old cemetery. I lifted my chin off the ground to see the flames reaching higher and higher into the night sky. They were so bright, brighter than the stars themselves. The firefighters worked until morning to put the fire out and the dogs never found me. By then, I had slithered away and out of the trees, blending in with society like the snake that I was, with my hands in my jeans pockets to hide the dried blood from the thorns that pierced into my skin. I crept into backyards and slinked over fences until I reached my apartment building and tucked myself into bed where I lay awake, wide-eyed, and wondered if Noah would succumb to his burns or the pain or both, had I wished this. experiences uh while writing this story yeah I definitely drew on my own experiences while writing this story and also the experiences of those that I um hold dear um a lot of my writing actually stems from real life experiences it gives me that um kind of like that board to spring off of and uh just to run with and so it's it's truth but it's very, very exaggerated. Um, although there are 
themes within this novel that are very difficult as well um, as a disclaimer. Um, there is a lot of um, sexual violence and um, so that's something that I'm still trying to figure out how to write in a way that is not going to be too triggering for readers, especially with my readership now being, um, I believe it's young adult. So I wanna make sure that um, I'm not like um, surprising people too much with this one, but it is definitely a little bit of a departure from the other books. Can you talk a little bit about the culture of drinking uh, amongst youth in the North? Yeah, another uh, theme is um, addictions here in this, in, in Firekeeper. And um, definitely in the North, I think there's a lot more issues with alcoholism. Um, because of the location, uh, we're, we're very isolated here and um, far removed from kind of the rest of Canada, really. And um, it's a mining town, you know, it's very transient. And so drinking is kind of the thing that uh, people look forward to on the weekends and it's become the norm. And one of the things I really try to do um, in my sobriety is to spread that message that, you know, it's actually not really normal to drink every weekend and blackout and things like that. And so, um, I mean, growing up that, that that's what it was for us. And now that I'm older, I realize that it's actually um, very, very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of fire in the North as well? Like what does fire represent? So fire in the North is really, really important. Um, we basically rely on it for heating um, when it's minus 50. Um, you know, and if you go into the barren lands, there's no wood. You have to make sure that you are able to survive the cold. So fire is probably the essential element of the North. And um, when, when Indigenous people uh, refer to feeding the fire, that's also a very sacred, um, a sacred uh, ceremony that happens. Um, and basically what that is, is uh, you're, when you're feeding the fire or um, what is the word, um, giving to the fire and putting food or putting tobacco, what you're really doing is having a conversation or sharing a meal with the, your, your loved ones that have gone on and passed into the spirit world. And fire is also something that is happening more and more we see with climate change too, um, with forest fires becoming more prominent here in the North. Um, I think fire is just one of those elements that can really be written in so many different ways. And that's what I'm trying to do with Firekeeper. Oh, and also to um, Firekeeper is an actual job that people are given um, to, if there's ever a very important um, ceremony that's happening, or if there's ever a loved one that's passed, usually a person in the community is designated to become the firekeeper and what they have to do is keep that fire going for as long as possible usually up to three days so it's a very very important job not to let that fire go out and then do you think that the the characters in this excerpt deserve to be burned by the fire why or why not 
I don't believe anybody ever deserves to be hurt. Um, I think with the main character here, Nyla, um, she sometimes thinks that she wants people to be hurt because she's so emotional in, in different ways and, um, and because she's been scorned. So she feels as though that's what other people should feel the same way as her. Um, but I think her intrinsic values and morals within her say otherwise. And so she's fighting against that. That's what the conflict within her is whether or not she wants to be, um, to use the, the powers of fire and against or, or for her. So, um, but no, I don't think that she ever wants to hurt anyone. She does come off to be the bad guy though in this, in this book. How does this story connect to justice? So for this excerpt, um, she's running away from the devastation that she's just caused and, um, whether or not it's an accident is up to the reader to decide, but she is running away um, because she's afraid of the repercussions of, of what she just did. And I think that that really plays into uh, what a lot of um, Indigenous peoples feel about the police is that, you know, there's not really a sense of justice um, when you're reprimanded. And I think it's really a fearful thing to get pulled over by the police or to get um, to get in trouble. And so it sometimes seems like it's easier to just run away and not um, own up to to your mistakes. So there's that. And then also, too, I think I might try to um, incorporate um, in in the novel um, her interaction with the police a little bit more. There is another point of the novel where she's um, in a lot of danger with a, a man in a hotel room and she, the police come and the police don't believe her, they believe him. And so um, there's that too, you know, it's like she's, here's this young Indigenous woman who's okay, and clearly intoxicated, publicly intoxicated. And then there's this white male that is, seems like he's got it together. Um, who are they going to believe? You know, and it's kind of like that flip role reversal too is it could be this, the same could be said for the, um, the profiled brown man against the word of a white woman who's crying. Um, the police are often going to um, take the, the white person's uh, word for it, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so as well. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about your journey as a writer and getting published. How's that been for you? Oh, it's just been like so life-changing. Um, I'm I sent out Northern Wildflower to probably 10 different publishers across Canada and literary agents, and I got no bites. And then Beverly Ratch over at Fernwood Publishing decided to give me a chance. And I just, I didn't realize um, that I could do it. But when Northern Wildflower was done, 
and out in the world. My, my mentor, I always say this because it's just like one of those things that sticks with me. Um, my mentor, Richard Van Camp, we were talking and I was like, well, what do I do now? And he was like, well, you just keep writing, you know? And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I do. So then that's when Land, Water, Sky started. I um, pitched it to uh, Fernwood and they picked it up even though it was a mess. And I'm forever thankful to Fernwood and to Beverly for believing in my work. And um, I think it's a really, really important that indigenous peoples are given these opportunities because we don't have, we often don't have the means or the accessibility of, um, reaching out to getting different people on board, whether that be an editor or, or something to have like a polished manuscript, because a lot of these mainstream media companies, publishing companies, they want perfection. They want it absolutely perfected before you even send it to their desk. And so, you know, if there are people out there that will take it as it is and then work with you to help to get it to where it needs to be, that's super, super important. Um, so I'm just, I, I think I'm kind of lucky in that way that that was an option for me. Do you have any advice for new or emerging writers? Yeah, I would say, you know, reach out. Um, I wrote Northern Wildflower all by myself. And when it was done, then I started sending it around to people. And they were like, what? You did this all by yourself and didn't tell anybody? And like, you could have had so much more support behind you, you know? So I would say, reach out. Like, I'm always around. I don't mind helping where I can. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a support system of Indigenous um, writers here in Canada that are kind of like this really close-knit group. And it's just really amazing. So... I would say, you know, just if that's what you really want to do, write the story and don't, um, one thing I do like when I'm writing is a lot of the times, like, I'll be like, oh, this is, this is so garbage. Like, this is like, I'll have that negative self-talk, but you have to push through that and just get it on the paper and then deal with it after. So many people got, get caught up with oh, it's got to be like so good on paper. I need to make sense of this. I need to know what I'm doing. But really, if it's just like spilled out onto the paper, you can deal with it later because the edits take, that's where the work comes in is with the edits. And that's where it gets perfected and that's where it starts to shine and that's where it starts to make sense. This episode was created and produced by Catherine Lafferty and myself at CFUV with financial support from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. The CRFC is the only organization mandated to provide financial support for nonprofit radio stations in Canada. CFUV is a nonprofit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria campus on the traditional, unceded, and unsurrendered territories of the Wissanich and Lekwungen people. Visit cfuvpodcasts.com or search for CFUV wherever you get podcasts for more homegrown, cutting-edge content. Must each show for listening. Have a nice day.